Thank you for tuning in with us at Bayou City Fellowship Spring Branch, a community that's radically focused on Jesus. Join us as we continue our study through the book of Acts, Luke's account of how the Holy Spirit breathed life into and empowered the early church to fulfill the Great Commission after Jesus' passion. Well, I want to wish everyone first a happy new year. Happy New Year. And also, uh, we have a special group today. We have the new recruitment staff from Camp Ozark are here today as a group. Where are they at? I I met one of them outside. There they are over there. Welcome to Vice City Fellowship. Well, in the first nine days of the new year, I don't know how it's gone for you so far. Uh, I know from one of our members who attends uh, the nine o'clock I saw her this morning, She lost a family member on January 1st. If you heard about this tragic shooting that happened just a few miles south of here, uh, leaves behind uh, three kids, this young mom who was shot tragically. So for some, it's already started out on a morning and grieving. Uh, For me, uh, some of you know how I got to Bike City Fellowship. Uh, My mom had just passed away. This is November of 2019 or late October 2019. About two, three weeks later, Got an email from Dr. Bruce Fong. Dr. Bruce Fong at the time was the dean of Dallas Seminary at Houston. Uh, he is, uh, I would say, a mentor of mine, someone I really looked up to. So again, picture this young Asian Japanese kid uh, coming to faith in Christ, being called to ministry. And if you remember these days, there was a, a time when Promise Keepers was huge in America, and Promise Keepers was a men's ministry movement. How many of you have been to men's uh, Promise Keepers? Any, any men in here, Promise Keepers? And so um, the goal of Promise Keepers really calling men to a relationship with Jesus Christ to be the husbands and the fathers if they were husband or father to God called them to be, but also to bring about racial reconciliation to bring black and men, Asian and Hispanic and uh, white men, all men together to worship the Lord together. And so that was the goal of Promise Keepers. But I remember being a very young Christian who'd been called to ministry. And I remember seeing Chuck Swindoll and I remember seeing Tony Evans and I see, remember seeing Luis Palau, and I said, I wonder who like the Asian voice is for believers. And it was Dr. Bruce Fong. And so I remember when he came to Houston 10 years ago to become the dean of Dallas Seminary at Houston, a friend of mine was a professor there, and she asked me, would you like to meet Bruce Fong? And I don't know if you, any of you have like uh, uh, celebrity crushes or whatever, you know, like I remember like, she's like, you want to meet Bruce Fong? I'm like, would I? Like, would I? Like I've been admiring from afar for like 20 years. And so I remember walking into his very modest office, and he said, hey, good to meet you. And I'm like, and just picture it this way. Who knows Francis Chan? Who knows Francis Chan? We all know Francis. Before Francis Chan was Dr. Bruce Fong, all right? He was like the, the one who paved the way for Asian-American pastors and preachers. So here I am, like, all like, ha, oh, my name's Icky. I'm totally nervous, right? And he gave me this book called The Wall. The Wall. Um... But this was what he did uh, back in 2019, almost two years ago to the day. He said, hey, I just want to meet with you. And I thought it was about my mom and her home going. He said, no, I didn't know that. I'm sorry about that. Uh, he's kind of a pastor of pastors here in Houston. And he said, what I really want to meet with you about is this. I've got two opportunities that I want you to consider. And I had told nobody this other than my wife and me, like two or three close friends that I was praying about if God had like a new season of ministry for me. And I'm like, how did you know? And he said, know what? And he said, that I'm kind of praying about that right now. I'm fasting. He said, I didn't know, but I just felt like this. He said, one opportunity is in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I used to be the interim pastor there. I was there for about a year. And now they're a multi-site church. They're looking for a teaching pastor. I think you'd be a great fit. I've recommended you. Uh, And the second opportunity is this. It's here in Houston. It's Bayou City Fellowship. They're looking for a campus pastor. And I was interested in both. So I submitted my resume to both, got calls and interviews. And you know the whole story. And you know how the story ends. I'm here today. Well, Bruce Fong just went home to be at the Lord on Friday. I just found out. So uh, I got a text uh, from a member here who's very well connected to him and said, hey, he just went home to be at the Lord on Friday. So would you pray for the Fong family? He leaves behind three kids and also for the Dallas Seminary family. He was a very integral part of Dallas Seminary as well. But again, going back to the book, he gave me this book, autographed it and signed it for me called The Wall. And this was one of his big heartbeats was... Ephesians 2.14, I read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, it's a call to worship, that this wall that would divide Jew and Gentile has come down. And not only the wall between Jew and Gentile, 
Any wall that would seek to divide the church, whether rich and poor, black and white, uh, socioeconomics, generations, all those things, any wall that we could imagine that would try to divide the church, political walls and cultural walls, have come down in Jesus Christ, and we should be a united body. And if, if you want a very scholarly look at this, I mean, it's written with footnotes and all these end notes and stuff, and Greek and Hebrew and all these things, because again, he's got his PhD in practical theology from University of Aberdeen, but it's this really a call to the church here in America, but also local churches, to really be this united place where all of God's people who name the name of Jesus can come together. But here's a tension with all that. You and I know that the church struggles with staying united, struggles with being harmonious, struggles with health. So today we're going to look at why that is from Acts chapter 15 and our role in harmony and unity in the church. Acts chapter 15, our role in harmony and unity in the church. <clears throat> Acts 15. Uh, and the book is available if you want to read it. Uh, the wall is available on Amazon. You can buy it today. I'm not currently reading my copy of it, so if you want to borrow my copy, I'll, I'll be over here after the worship gathering if you want to borrow my copy of the wall. Jesus destroyed the wall of hostility. His church must never rebuild it, Ephesians 2.14. So in Acts 15, by this point, it has been 10 years since the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8 came to faith in Jesus Christ, a non-Jew the first non-Jew to come to faith in Christ was the Ethiopian eunuch, although there was also a proselyte in the church in Jerusalem, but he's like the first recorded. And then we find also 10 years ago, Cornelius. Peter preaches the gospel to Cornelius and his household, and his household comes to faith. So we see a Gentile convert. So it's been 10 years since non-Jews have now become a part of the body of Christ. So this is like, for me, old news. But notice what happens 10 years later. Paul and Barnabas have come back from the first missionary journey. They're back at the church of Antioch, a very diverse city. They have one church. They don't have an African church, a European church, a Jewish church, an Arabic church. They have one church. This church is led by two Africans, two, uh, two Jews, and one European. It's a very diverse group of leaders who sent out Paul and Barnabas to do the first missionary journey, and they've come back, and notice what happens in verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brothers. Now hold your finger there. Uh, if you look at a map, Judea is actually south of Antioch. So how can they say they came down? Is because they came down in elevation. So Judea is higher than Antioch. So they came down the mountain and began teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had a heated argument and debate with them, the brothers determined that Paul and Barnabas and that some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, after being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they're bringing great joy to all the brothers and sisters. Verse 4, when they arrived in Jerusalem, they were received by the church, the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees, who had believed, stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to keep the law of Moses. So here's the first theologically potentially divisive issue that hit the church. Here's point number one. Potentially divisive issue was this. How Jewish do non-Jewish Christians need to be in order to be saved? How Jewish do non-Jewish Christians, believers, need to be in order to be saved? And so there's a group of these Pharisees, probably Pharisees before who came to faith in Christ, who said this, hey, if you were a non-Jew, if you were a Gentile, goyim, you would have to get circumcised, commit to submitting to the law of Moses, and get baptized in order to become this Jewish proselyte, to become a Jew. You'd have to do those things. And because of that, now as a follower of Jesus Christ, the same things are required. These men who come to faith in Jesus Christ also have to get circumcised and also submit to the Mosaic law in order to be saved. That's what they were teaching and espousing, and it became this very divisive issue because here we, said, we see in verse 3 that Paul and Barnabas are telling them, hey, we've been on these missionary journeys, and we've seen non-Jews, Gentiles, coming to faith in Jesus Christ. We see them full of the Holy Spirit doing miracles. They have not been circumcised. They're not keeping the law of Moses. And yet, we know the Spirit is in them, and they're doing all these things on behalf of God and his kingdom work. So this is the first divisive issue that hits the church. 
And what they do is they make it sound like James, the half-brother of Jesus, who's also, I would say, the first bishop or overseer, elder at the church at Jerusalem, also is giving them backing as well, saying, hey, we speak on behalf of the church of Jerusalem. So that's why they say, hey, we get in this heated debate and argument. Let's bring it to Jerusalem and figure this thing out. So this is known as the Council of Jerusalem. Now notice their response in verse 6. He says, the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And there had been much debate. Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. Pause right there. Again, remember Acts chapter 10, when Peter gets a call to be this missionary ambassador to the Gentiles, he leads Cornelius to Christ. So again, it's been 10 years, 10 years, and they still can't figure this thing out. And the reason why is this, is because all of us in here individually, but also collectively as a church at Bicey Fellowship, but also a church at large, we're under constant reformation, constant growth, constant growing in the Lord, constant growing more into the knowledge of the scriptures. And so again, it's been 10 years. And at Bicey Fellowship, you all, it's been 10 years since we've been born. It's been 10 years, and there's still some things that we're still trying to figure out. I was asked during their prayer and fasting meeting, a couple came to me and asked about a certain thing, and I said, we're still trying to figure that out. We're 10 years old. So I said, imagine your 10-year-old nephew or niece, and you ask them, do you know how to compose a resume? They'd probably say, probably not, unless you have one of those genius, res- uh, genius nephews or nieces. So even the church in Jerusalem, the church at Antioch, was still trying to figure this stuff out, they're in this debate about what must a person do to be saved. Are we Judaism 2.0, that we still have to be circumcised, keep the law, or is it in faith in Christ alone? And notice the response. Verse 9, and God who knows uh, the heart testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. He gave it to the Gentiles, and he made no distinction between us, Jews, and them, cleansing their hearts, underline this word, by Faith, by faith. So Peter says, hey, we're 10 years since it's been the first conversion, the first non-Jew, the first Gentile. But remember, God's made it clear, by faith. Verse 10, since this is the case, why are you putting God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples your yoke which neither our forefathers nor we have been able to bear? And underline this whole verse. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. So he's saying, us Jews were saved by grace through faith. That's how the Gentiles were saved as well. And this is the key verse. This is the key verse, verse 11. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they also are. And this is what unites the church. This is what unites the body of Christ is the gospel. James reiterates that. James is the bishop. He's the half-brother of Jesus. Verse 13, after they stopped speaking, James responded saying, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, and notice this cultural nuance. Simeon is Peter's Jewish name. He's basically saying, you've just heard from our Jewish Christian brother. This Jewish Christian brother, who Jesus called the rock, he said it himself, saved by faith, through grace. He says, Simeon described how God first concerned himself about taking people from his name from among the Gentiles. The words of the prophets agree with this just as it is written. Amos 11, 9 through 11 through 12. Verse 16, after these things I will return, I will rebuild the fallen tabernacle of David. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. That's Amos 9, 11 through 12. He says, Even the prophets have said this is going to happen. God has a plan for the Gentiles. But notice this. He also quotes Isaiah 45, 21. Says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. And so I'll give you the, spare you the subtle nuances and all that. Some people say this is the millennial kingdom one day. When Jesus comes back for a thousand years to rule and reign. Some say no, it's both a thousand years from now, or a thousand year reign, but also today. I would argue it's today. That God has a plan for the Gentiles, both today and also in this kingdom to come as well. And he's building what's known as a new temple. Here he's talking about rebuilding the tabernacle temple. But God is doing something in our day known as rebuilding this temple because we're the temple. These verses spelled out clearly. 1 Corinthians 6.19 and 3.16. 1 Corinthians 3.16 and 6.19 says, We, 
Y'all, he's saying, are the temple of God. We're these living stones being built up in this temple. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter 2, 5. And so he says, God is building this temple in this world that's comprised of both Jew and Gentile. And they come into this relationship with God, not by keeping the law and being circumcised, but by faith alone. And again, they would probably point to Genesis 17 when Abraham and Isaac came into this covenant relationship and they got circumcised. He says, no more. It's by faith alone. Um, when I read that, verse 12, I thought I'd get, or verse 11, I thought I'd get a little bit more reaction from you all, but it's by faith alone. <laughs> faith is what unites us, faith in Christ alone. So point number two, again, the gospel alone unites all believers. The gospel alone unites all believers across political lines, racial or cultural lines, ethnic lines, denominational lines, generational lines. It's the gospel alone that unites us. It's the gospel alone that unites us. It's our faith in Jesus Christ alone that unites us. No matter your skin color, your background, what college you claim, where you went to school, any of those things, it's the gospel that unites us. Now, here's the thing that is added, though, because this is what's known as unity, unity, that as believers in Jesus Christ, we have unity in the gospel. And here's the twofold aspect of it. We have unity in a person, Colossians 1 says that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He's the Lord. He's the king. So if you are here today and you submit and you radically focus on Jesus, we're united by that, by the person of Jesus Christ. If he's your Lord, he's your king. The second thing is we're united in purpose. Matthew 28, 19 through 20 says this, go and make disciples of all ethnicities or ethne, all nations. It's our purpose that we are all called in here to make followers of Jesus Christ. And so we are united by the person of Christ. We submit to him as our king. Regardless of our background, ethnicity, we're united in, under him, but also united in purpose as well. You all know this. Uh, several years ago, I loved the, the team the Rockets had. I remember going and doing chapel. They had a player from Asia. They had a, several white players that come to chapel. They had other players that came to chapel. And this is also what I love about chapel, period. Um, I've done many, many college chapels, and I'm wearing OSU today. Somebody, oh, where's Riley? Riley got me this uh, Go Pokes uh, thing. I've done many, many college chapels, Louisiana Tech, Rice, all these schools I've done, UH as well. In college football chapel, this is how many people think church should be. College football chapel, really, it's a pregame speech before the coach's pregame speech. <laughs> they want to make sure that God is on our side before we take the field. That's what they want, Right? But I remember the very first time I did NBA chapel. And this is what's unique about NBA chapel. It happens one hour before tip-off. And both the home team and the away team, the home coaches and the away coaches come to chapel. So this is why it's radically different. Because in college football, when I've done chapel with them, it's like the coach like, now if we win, we're going to bring you back next time, right? <laughs> they want God on their side. But in the NBA, I still remember the first time, I'm thinking to myself, one hour before tip-off, you are all about to trade bows and go for the win, but for the 15 minutes from 6 to 6.15, you've come together saying, you know what, we may wear different uniforms, we may be white, we may be Asian, we may be black, we may be African, but for this 15 minutes, we're brothers in Christ, we're the church. This 15 minutes, what would the world would seek to divide us? Different uniforms, different ethnicities, different backgrounds. Some came from suburban communities, some from urban communities. What the world seeks to divide us over for this 15 minutes, we're claiming that we are the church. And that's what the church is. The gospel of Jesus Christ unites us. And I think that's what the picture of the church should be. That every time we gather on Sunday mornings, every time we gather in community groups, it should be a picture like NBA Chapel. People from all different backgrounds who come together, different workplaces, Aggies and Longhorns who come together, who say, you know what? We may have our differences. The world may divide us, but we're united in purpose, making disciples, and in the person of Jesus Christ. But this is what we struggle with. That's the ideal world. And one day, Matthew, I mean, Revelation 7, Revelation 9, talk about all tribes, nations, and tongues rallying and worshiping around to him who sits on the throne and under the Lamb. That's going to be true one day, but we live in the real world that's broken. We live in the real world where Galatians 5, 19 through 21 says, he says, these are the deeds of the flesh. You have the spirit in the flesh. Here are the deeds of the flesh. 
Two of them are factions and dissensions. We're naturally selfish. We want our way. And so he says, there's the aspect of unity, but there's also the aspect of harmony. Getting along together, fellowship, the sharing of life together. And if you can be honest with yourself, and I can be honest with myself, you know that harmony is hard. Let me just ask this. Married couples in the room. How many of y'all know marital harmony is hard? Marital harmony is hard. Raise your hand. Don't be shy. You can raise your hand. Right, Blake's like, Teresa's like, okay now. And Blake's like. So if you know that any kind of even marital relational harmony is hard, imagine billions of believers around the world. Imagine a thousand people that are here right now, how difficult that's going to be with all our ethnic and cultural and background differences and who we vote for. Imagine that, how difficult that's going to be. So this is what happens. Peter and James say the gospel unites us. But notice what he says here in verse 19, Acts 15, 19. Because of our flesh, because of our selfishness. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not cause trouble for, these, uh, for those from the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols, from acts of sexual immorality, from that which has been strangled and from blood. From ancient generations, Moses has those who preach him in every city since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Now, what James is not doing, he's not adding to the gospel. He's not saying in order to be saved, you can't have food sacrifice, idols, sexual immorality, uh, animals strangled, uh, strangled and eating blood. He says that's not a condition of the gospel. This is not a unity in the gospel issue. I'll explain that further. He says, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas, who's called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers. So James, the half-brother of Jesus, the bishop or overseer of the church at Jerusalem, says, here's my decision. Here's what it is. The gospel unites us, but harmony is hard. For the sake of harmony... Food sacrifice to idols, sexual immorality, uh, animals that are strangled, and then also blood. Let's abstain from that for the sake of harmony in the church. And notice this letter in verse 23. Uh, I'm sorry. And they, they sent Judas and Silas because in the Greco-Roman days, you would send a witness group of four to validate. So Paul and Barnabas who came from Antioch also came with two people who came from Jerusalem, the church of Jerusalem, and said, hey, Paul and Barnabas aren't making this up. Here's the real deal. Here's their letter. Look what he says in this letter. And they sent this letter with them. Again, confirming their witness, confirming their, validating their witness. The apostles and the brothers who are elders, the brothers and sisters in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, who are from the Gentiles, greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have confused you by their teaching, upsetting your souls. Pause right there. He says in verse one, these brothers from Judea came up claiming to speak on behalf of the apostles and those from Jerusalem. He says, not the case. We didn't send them. Verse 25, it seemed good to us having become of one mind, underline that word, one mind. It's a frequent picture in Acts of unity, of having this united belief, unity, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who've risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we've sent Judas and Silas, and Silas will later go on missionary journeys with Paul, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. Again, for confirmation. Verse 28. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from acts of sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves free from, these, uh, free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. So this is what James says. James says, Peter says, and Paul would say, and I'll see Jesus would say, you and I are saved by grace through faith. It's faith that unites all believers across denominational, racial, cultural, political lines. It's the gospel that unites us. But here's the B section. But don't let your behavior or liberty hinder your witness or the fellowship or harmony, we'd say. Don't let your behavior or liberty hinder your witness or harmony. Church health and harmony are very hard. They're very fragile, just like the human body. Dr. Bruce Fong, I had lunch with him in 2019, and then two years later, 
He's now home in the Lord. Even physical health is very often very fragile. Church health and harmony is fragile as well. So he says, for the sake of harmony and fellowship in the church and for our witness, he says these four things. First thing is this. The things sacrificed to idols. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, you can write this down, 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 22, that you may have the freedom as a Christian to now do one thing, uh, to eat meat sacrificed to idols. But if you have a brother or sister in Christ who if they knew that this good, delicious filet mignon you're about to eat was sacrificed to some strange God or some foreign God or some idol, and would cause them to stumble to make you think that there's more than one true God or make, you, or make them stumble in their faith, even though you have the freedom to eat that in your conscience, you would lovingly limit your liberty so as not to cause them to stumble. Here's the definition of liberty. There's a cultural definition of liberty that we often toss around. The cultural definition of liberty is I have the freedom to do what I want to do. I want to go to this store, I go to that store. I don't want to go to work today, I don't go to work today. I want to vote for this one, I do, I'm going to vote for this person. Biblical liberty is this. Biblical liberty is I have now the freedom to do what God wants me to do. Because before you were a slave to sin, you were a slave to sin and you could not do God's will. You could not do what God commanded you to do. You couldn't do what God wanted you to do. But now in Christ, you have been set free. We've been set free. We've been released, and now when God says, go make disciples, now when God says, abstain from sexual immorality, by the power of the Spirit, we can say no to sin, no to temptation, and now yes to God. And so he says, we have this great freedom, but don't let your freedom become a stumbling block for somebody else. And so in those days, the Jewish believers, if they knew that you were eating food that had been sacrificed an idol, you as a non-Jewish Gentile believer could cause them to stumble. And we don't understand that world today because we don't go to H-E-B or we don't go to Randall's today and say, excuse me, fine sir, has this meat been sacrificed to idols? <laughs> right? They don't have statues and ornaments and idols at the meat market anymore by which they say, hey, now this meat is $5 a pound, it's idol free, and this one is two fifty a pound, it's like covered in idols. They don't do that anymore. <laughs> but here are some other things that we may struggle with. That you and I, and maybe you're included in this group, come from a background where you really struggle with alcohol. The Bible's clear. Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk with wine. How many of y'all know drunkenness is a sin? Raise your hand if you know drunkenness is a sin. Just like 9 o'clock, everyone's like hesitant. Like, drunkenness, is that a sin? Like, <laughs> should I raise my hand? Are you going to like follow me Friday night to see where I go after work? Like, no, no. So drunkenness is clearly a sin. But drinking itself, beer, wine, whatever, is not a sin. Amen? Amen. But. <laughs> how, how come when I say the gospel unites all believers, you're like, amen. Drinking is not a sin. Oh, yeah, amen, amen, yes. Get on that keyboard. Revival's coming, yes. Golly. And I know y'all watching on YouTube are saying the same thing. But here's the thing. You and I, perhaps even those here, may have a background in recovery. You have a time when you really struggle with alcohol. And so you may have the freedom now to enjoy a drink. Your community group may say, hey, we're going to have a Christmas party. But you know there's people in your community group who love the Lord Jesus Christ just as much as you do. But you know that by you offering drinks, it could be a stumbling block for them. And so you would go to them privately and say, brother, sister, and I know that you, you're in this Christian recovery program, that you really struggle with this, and we want to serve alcohol at our community group Christmas party. But if you would struggle and that would cause you to stumble, we are more than willing to hold that freedom and that liberty to do that. That's the use of liberty. How you spend your money how you advertise who you vote for, all these other things. There are certain things that you say, I have the freedom to do all these things, but I will limit my liberty so as not to cause somebody, another believer to stumble or even to harm my witness. If you have a neighbor 
If you have a coworker who's not a believer, you know they're a diehard like Republican. Do you have the freedom to wear your Biden hair shirt when you go visit with them at their house? Sure you do. But could it cause them to stumble? Could it hinder your witness where they begin to think in order to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you also have to align with this political party? And it goes both ways. You would say, I'm just gonna wear a plain T-shirt. I'm just gonna wear a polo shirt. If that would cause this person who may be a future brother or sister in Christ to stumble. We do that all the time culturally whenever we send missionaries overseas. I just got a report, the Ficklins, who we commissioned last week to go as missionaries. They said, hey, we're doing training right now. They're training, they're learning. When they go to another culture and they're ministering and they're witnessing and sharing the good news, there are certain things they may do in American culture they're free to do that in the culture they're going to, it may cause somebody to say, I don't want Jesus. If that's what I gotta do to become a follower of Christ. So James says, hey, tell them, gospel alone, that's what unites us. In your very, very cosmopolitan city, Antioch, we have Africans and you have Asians and and people from Europe. That's a very diverse city. Don't start an African church, an Asian church, and a Jewish church. He says, stay one church. And and to the Jewish brothers that are there, so that's causing the stumble, he says, number one, abstain from food sacrificed to idols. Number two, he says, food that's been strangled, another Jewish prohibition. If this animal's been strangled, again, we don't deal with this today because, again, you don't go to the meat market, H-E-B, and say, excuse me, sir, was this, was this cow, was this steer, like, choked to death? Like, tell me, you know? And for most of us, we don't consume blood. I know there's some cultures that do, but for a Jew, they found, I think it's Genesis 9, Leviticus 17, that life is in the blood, so they wouldn't consume blood. And so you as a believer would have the freedom to eat animal sacrifice to idols, eat animals that have been choked, eat animal blood. You have the freedom to do that. Enjoy blood pudding, but a Jewish believer may see that. That's at Bayou City Fellowship. That's a Christian coworker, and it may cause them to stumble. So you say, I'm gonna limit my liberty. And then the last thing he says is this, to avoid fornication, abstain from sexual immorality. The word is pornace, which includes a myriad of things. So he says, Your sexual behavior is a witness as well. And he says, because the people of that day live in a very loose and open sexual culture. People are sleeping around in one night stands and all kinds of stuff. They're using sex to advertise stuff and sell stuff. And I'm thankful that 21st century, we've really evolved away from all that, right? (laughs) And he said, because you have come out of that, in Ephesians, I mean, in Acts chapter one, it says that God has saved you out of this Crooked world, the word there is scoliosis, a crooked spine, a bent spine. He says, this world is broken and crooked. And so he says, as we have like these temples set up with prostitutes and all this stuff, he says, as believers in Christ, our sexual behavior, even the way that we dress should be different, set apart so as not to ruin our witness. I, didn't, I just heard my wife say amen on that one. Thank you, honey, for that amen. So we're free to drink, y'all. But we also have to be mindful of our relationships as well. So then he says this in verse 30. Notice the response. So when they were sent away, they went down to Antioch after getting the congregation together They delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. So they were encouraged by this. Gospel alone, that's what unites us. Judas and Silas also being prophets themselves encouraged and strengthened them, uh, strengthened the brothers and sisters with a lengthy message. After they had spent time there, they were sent away from the brothers and sisters in peace to those who had uh, sent them out. But Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Again, it's a reminder of Acts 11. They were equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry. They had been sent out. They came back and they said, we're gonna be sent out again. Let's equip the believers to do the work of the ministry. And this message, gospel alone, that's what unites us. He says, but stay away from these four things so not to ruin your witness, so as not to cause other believers who are Jewish to stumble. Limit these things is that it encouraged them. But here's the thing that falls on the heels of that. And I don't think this is an accident. So they've gone away in this missionary journey over a two-year time period, 1,400 miles. They've come back to Antioch, this very diverse city, this very diverse church. Verse 36, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let's return and visit the brothers and sisters in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. 
Verse 37, Barnabas wanted to take John, Mark called, uh, take John called Mark along with them also. But Paul was of the opinion that they should not take along with them this man who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them up to the work. Put your finger right there. Acts 13, 13 records this, that John Mark went with Paul and Barnabas. But in Acts 13, 13, it records this, that right before Pamphylia, he departed from them. He went back to Jerusalem. Many scholars have wondered, why did he do this? Some say that he was a mama's boy. He got homesick and wanted to go back home. Some say that they were about to encounter some very arduous hikes and trails up mountains, and he was scared of that, the travel ahead, so he went back home. Regardless, he betrayed them. He abandoned them. And so here's the thing. You can see the unique personalities. Here's Barnabas. He's the encourager. He's like, yeah, let's give him a second chance. Bring him along. Paul's like, no way, no way, no way. Nuh-uh. He left us the first time. He's going to do it again. And so then in verse 38, um, I'm sorry, verse 39, now it turned into such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left after being entrusted by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So even with that sharp disagreement overtaking John Mark and the mission, here's the good thing that came out of that. The mission was doubled. The second missionary journey, they went separate ways and reached double the amount of people they were going to reach. Paul took this guy, Silas, who came to the church at Jerusalem. So here's this thought here. Number three, just because Christians are united, it doesn't mean we won't disagree. It's a difference between what I call unity and uniformity. Unity and uniformity. Unity and uniformity. That just because you love the Lord Jesus Christ, we may have a different thought on John Mark. We may have different thoughts on the style of music that's appropriate for worship. We may have different thoughts on those kinds of things. So just because we're united in Christ doesn't mean that we are going to disagree. But I would hope for the sake of harmony that we would be willing to lay down some of our preferences. But here we find that these apostles disagreed and they split over. They went their separate ways. Here's what we find in scripture though. Paul still had a respectful admiration for Barnabas. In 1 Corinthians 9, 6, he speaks very highly of Barnabas and also of John Mark in Colossians 4, 10 and Philemon 1, He speaks very highly of uh, John Mark to the point in 2 Timothy 4, 11, the very last letter of the apostle Paul written from a prison, he reconciles, it looks like, in a relationship with John Mark. He says, now he's useful to me. This one that abandoned me before, let me down, he says he's useful to me now. So just because Christians are united doesn't mean we won't disagree. So here's the thing. The sermon's called The Time to Divide. Is there a time to divide amongst Christians? And here's the only issue we should divide over, and that is the gospel. That is the gospel. We should divide over the gospel. If you believe Romans 2, I mean, uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, which I read earlier, we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, if someone says, hey, it's Jesus alone, faith in Christ alone, and circumcision, sorry, not going to happen, and baptism, sorry, not going to happen, and joining this particular church or this particular domination, not going to happen. We are saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Anyone who teaches otherwise, it's now time to divide. It's time to say, bye, Felicia. <laughs> but the struggle is this. The harmony of the believers, the harmony of the believers, because if we're honest with ourselves, the spirit and our flesh are at war, and our flesh is constantly faction, dissension, my way, my music, my desires. So here's some questions. Here's some questions. Oh, here's the big idea, big idea for today. Ephesians 4.3, I think summarizes it well. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Both in this church, by City Fellowship, but tomorrow when you go to work, you've got other coworkers that go to other churches to make every effort to keep that bond. And there's only one thing to divide over, and that is the gospel. The gospel. I forgot to mention this. The context of this, Acts 15, is this. 
In Galatians chapter 2, you know this. In Galatians chapter 2, Peter from Acts 10 has now, again, 10 years ago, this freedom to eat both clean and unclean foods. He's now proclaiming faith in Jesus Christ alone. He's got this freedom. And so he is at the church at Antioch, this very, very diverse church. And he's eating with his non-Jewish brothers, his Gentile brothers. And I'm sure he's enjoying like some nice bacon and some sausage, right? And some hot dogs. He's enjoying some good pork. He's getting some lobster and prawns and all this stuff that before was unclean to him. But then he sees the Jewish brothers of the circumcision who say you have to be circumcised in order to be a Christian. You have to be Jewish and Christian. What does he do? He discriminates against his Gentile Christian brothers who he's fellowshipping with, he's harmonizing with, walks away from them and now eats with his circumcised Jewish brothers. He causes division in the church at Antioch, this very, very united church. And what does Paul do? The apostle Paul gets up in his face. That's what Galatians 2 says. I had to confront him to his face. I had to get up in his grill and say to him, what you are doing is antithetical to the gospel. He's not saying you lose your salvation, but he says, you know that the gospel unites us. What are you doing dividing us? And then he says, your identity, my identity, our identity in Jesus Christ is not primarily our culture or our ethnicity or even our socioeconomics, where we went to school, none of those things. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives me in the life which I now live. You now live. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Our primary identity that we carry into eternity is Jesus Christ. So he says, you're acting antithetical to the gospel, y'all. When you divide over racial, cultural, ethnic, political differences. It's the gospel alone that saves. So he says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Here's three questions. Number one, who do I need to reconcile with and ask forgiveness from for the sake of unity in the church or even harmony in the church? Is there another brother or sister in Christ at Bayou City Fellowship, a coworker, even a relative, that you know we're united in Christ? We're part of God's family in Jesus Christ. But when it comes to like harmony, Man, we were supposed to do that one project together for work, exploring you gas and oil wells, and he didn't do his part, and so now I don't talk to him anymore. Is there somebody that you need to reconcile with as a brother or sister in Christ to make every effort to press into it? Number two, where do I need to limit my liberty for the sake of fellowship in the church, for harmony in the church? Where do I need to limit my liberty for the sake of unity, unity, harmony, fellowship in the church, for harmony in the church? Last question. What do I need to stop doing to not hinder my witness for Christ? Again, you've got liberty, freedom in Christ. Freedom. But one thing is obedience to Jesus Christ. You don't have freedom there. You either obey or don't obey. And is there an area of my life where I know I'm being disobedient to the Lord and it's ruining, messing up, hindering my witness for Jesus Christ? Am I living just like all my non-Christian co-workers? Am I spending my money just like my non-Christian co-workers? Am I living sexually just like my non-Christian co-workers? Am I spending my time, my resources? Are there things that I'm doing where people are like, why would I want to be a Christian? There's no difference. You're just like me. And not saying I'm not preaching a perfection doctrine, but what is it that you know, maybe the Spirit has to convict you of, where God is saying to you, it's hindering your witness. Your language may be hindering your witness. Um... How many of you all have enjoyed the cooler weather the last few days? Anybody like me enjoy the cooler weather? Two things I enjoy doing in the winter that have been messed up the last couple weeks because of the warm weather. I, I'm training for a half marathon 
Katie half. And so hard to train for a half marathon or marathon when it's warm and humid. I think the Houston Marathon's today, right? I think there's people running. And I enjoy trout fishing. So during the winter, they stock air lakes with trout, and trout are cold water fish, and so it's warm. The water's warm. It's hard to catch fish, right, Sean? Right, hard, hard to catch fish. So I've enjoyed the cooler weather that we've been having the last week or so, week and a half. But here's what happened the other day. Uh, we got watched the news. They say, hey, freezing temps are coming. And they say, protect the three Ps. What are the three Ps? Pipes, pets, and plants. And so what I did, even though it was starting to get cool outside, I went outside and I turned off all our sprinkler system pipes and whatever. And in the process of doing it, I messed up. I turned on one thing, turned off another thing, and there's a piece of plastic, like a retainer thing that broke. And so I'm like, hey, honey, I think I broke it. I'm just going to leave it off for now because the cold weather's coming in. And so then uh, she said, hey, it's all right. And so I went on homedepot.com or whatever and found out how much the replacement part was. It was $60 for a little piece of plastic. So I'm like, come on, stewardship, stewardship. So I said to my wife, and she found a couple parts as well. And so I said, I'm going to try to glue it back together. It's a really small plastic part. And so uh, she found some crazy glue, but it said crazy glue, not good for plastic, hard plastics. So I Google like, what is a good epoxy or some kind of thing for hard plastics? And I found it, and it's this stuff called Loctite Plastics. And it's got like a two-step process that bonds the plastic so it becomes one again. So I take this plastic part, buy my $4 bottle of glue, and I haven't reinstalled it yet, so please just be patient with me. I'm just, we'll see what happens. $60 part, $4 bottle of glue. I said, here's what's been broken and fractured. Let me glue it back together with this two-step process to bring it back together and make it one again. And I'm going to reinstall it probably tomorrow or sometime this week when I've got some time. Reinstall it and turn everything back on. What's been broken, two, now becoming one. And this is what it said on the back of the card. It said, now put these, like a two-step thing. And it said, keep them pressed together. Keep them pressed together. And so what I did was I put the parts together that was true, put them back together, and kept them pressed together. And all of a sudden I thought to myself, this is a picture of harmony and unity in the church. This is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, that we have this unity in the gospel. But harmony is tough, y'all. Harmony is hard. Church health and harmony is hard. And that's why he says in Ephesians 4, 3, to all of us in here, this is a call, make Every effort, keep diligent, keep pressing those things together. When we seek to be divided and separated, keep pressing it together. Because one day in glory, one day in eternity, both Revelation 7 and Revelation 9 say we will be one. We'll all be worshiping, every tribe, nation, and tongue, worshiping to him who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb, Jesus Christ. We will be finally, permanently united and harmonious. But until then, he's saying, Keep us pressed together. Unity in the gospel and harmony as brothers and sisters in Christ. So again, is there somebody the Holy Spirit is saying, that's a brother in Christ. They may go to another church. That's a sister in Christ. They may live in Connecticut. They may live in Arizona, but that's a sister in Christ that you're out of fellowship with. You're not seeing eye to eye with. You've never reconciled with. And you may go and ask for forgiveness, and they may say, buzz off. But Paul tells us, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. You've done your part. Or is there another aspect of your liberty? that You're free to eat whatever, do and spend your money how you want, but you know that's hindering harmony in the believers or your witness. Or is there a direct scripture that you know God says, I shouldn't do this, that's hindering your witness? that God is speaking to you about right now. So is there a time to divide? Yes, over the gospel. But make every effort, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Let's pray. God, we live in a world that constantly seeks to break us up and divide us. We live in divided communities. We work often in divided workplaces. God, but you tell us that we're now united as brothers and sisters. Romans chapter 8 tells us that we no longer have a spirit of slavery, but we now have a spirit of adoption by which we as brothers and sisters cry out, 
Abba, Father, Daddy, Father. We are the family of God. And God, we know just like our biological families, harmony is hard. Unity, having the same last name is often uh, easy. But harmony, relational harmony, fellowship, the sharing of life is difficult. And God, we see a picture of this even in the church in Antioch where it's almost divided over what must a person do. How Jewish does a non-Jew have to be to be be a Christian? God, we even see Paul and Barnabas disagreeing. So God, I pray, just like this letter sent to the church of Antioch, if there's anything that we need to limit our liberty on for the sake of harmony, would you reveal that to us? God, if there's anything that we are disobeying you in that's hindering our witness, would you reveal that to us, God? And God, if there's anybody, another brother or sister in Christ, maybe a parent, an uncle, a grandparent, a coworker, classmate, a bridge that we've burned, a relationship that we've broken. God, would you place their name on our hearts now and our minds? For the sake of harmony in the body, would you empower us to reach out to that brother or sister, to limit our liberty, and to obey you? For your kingdom and your namesake, we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. I'm going to ask prayer team, come on up. And if you need prayer about what we just talked about in the message or anything else, the prayer team's available. Also on the app, if you have the app, you can submit a prayer request to that. Every Thursday morning, uh, we as elders pray from 6.15 on to so about 6.45, 7. So if there's a request that you have, we'd love to pray for you, join you in that. Uh, also, we're going to do something a little bit different today. We're going to have a time of response. We're going to have two worship songs. So also make this a time of pouring your heart out to the Lord based on Him speaking to you and mentioning to you. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope that you feel encouraged. To stay up to date with our current sermon series, you can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. If you would like to find more ways to get involved with the Bayou City family, visit us online at bayoucityfellowship.com or download the Bayou City Fellowship Spring Branch app to find community in the body of Christ.